this development stuff is pretty closely aligned to what I do in my day job in construction. I'm just managing people and processes. Sort of at that point, it was like a light bulb moment. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with founder and development manager of Plus Ethos, Henry Lettingham. Having worked in the commercial construction industry for 10 years, we hear about the amazing situation that he and his wife find themselves in, some of the projects he has worked on and much, much more. We find out what a typical day looks like for Lenningham. I uh, love to get up early, so I'm up at five. I uh, grab a coffee. I live right next door to a park, so I go and um, take my coffee, sit on the steps of my house, and look out over the park because it's it's just an awesome setting to um, see a bit of a sunrise and you know get the sounds of the morning happening around me. Um, I've started journaling, so I, I sit down, do a bit of journaling work out my goals for the day, um, do some gratitude work and then I also do a bit of reading. So it's not necessarily reading um, relating to directly to property development but just more sort of personal interest stuff. Um, I then start into the day at about 6 o'clock um, and I focus on big tasks that I can get chunked away that are basically tasks that I call um tasks that make my money move, money needle move. So I, I heard that phrase from someone else and it's um, basically just knuckling down on those tasks and getting them sorted before the distractions of the day come in. Uh, about nine o'clock, I kind of, um, you know, switch the phone off um, airplane mode and then make some calls to consultants or if I need to visit a, a project site, I'll duck out and have a look around site, speak to the guys um, and then... I, uh, I love exercising and um, I'm really into uh, weight training and a bit of powerlifting as well. So uh, about mid-morning, try and get a, a weight session in and then after that, come back a bit more admin work, lunch, maybe try and read again for another half an hour and um, wind down the day with sort of some admin items that don't really need too much creativity and um, yeah, shut down by about five o'clock and catch up with my partner and find out about her day and um, decompress a little bit. Lettingham fills us in on what his wife does for a career and the interesting times they find themselves in. She um, works and, and it's probably a very topical subject at the moment. She works and is currently still employed by Virgin. Um, so she's cabin crew. So we, we, yeah, we're going through a really interesting time where um, she just does domestic flights and um, has had some shifts, but they're, you know, maybe 10% of the amount of shifts she was getting before. And, um, yeah, we're literally just sort of rolling through day by day with the news. We found out yesterday, I think, that they've gone into administration. With all the troubles that Virgin Airline have found themselves in recently, we get an update on the impact it is having on his wife and himself. It's been very interesting. Like, we... Um, have we've moved in together just this year and we've essentially been living out of each other's pockets um, since the start of the year. So it's brought us closer together. Um, it's definitely hard for her and also myself not knowing, you know, what the next day holds in terms of her employment. So um it's one of those things where it's just you play each day as it comes and um, just be grateful for the things that you do have, I think. You know, trying to predict the future and trying to, um, you know, work out all the scenarios sometimes doesn't necessarily help in that situation. So um, she's studying law as well. So in her last year and, um, yeah, looking to sort of branch out into that as well, um, which, you know, takes the pressure off the the, um, the virgin workload, I guess. We delve further into Lettingham's background and he talks to us about what his upbringing was like. So I had um, a really lovely 
um, childhood and it was kind of unique in terms of um, some other people's childhoods I guess so I grew up um, on farms in New South Wales northern New South Wales around Moree and Tamworth and when we lived down there they were cattle and grain farms um, my family were farmers and, and came from uh, a long line of farmers um, we then moved up to central Queensland um, near a place called Longreach so just to give a bit of an idea where that is that's about 700 kilometers inland from Rockhampton so it's it's really sort of in the center and isolated um, that um, so I, I was born in the country and then at about age 10 moved up to um, central Queensland so that brought along some you know awesome um, opportunities but then awesome challenges as well like our, our closest town um, was one hour away and that was just a very small town where there was a, a supermarket and a post office and that's about it and then the big city in inverted commas that was closest to us was three hours away and that's where you'd you'd literally you know plan weeks ahead to go to the big city of Longreach to stock up on all your your food and if you needed clothes to go there um so heaps of awesome experiences um we had floods while we we're up there so literally got flooded into our property and couldn't get um any food or supplies in and when it sort of got to the point of getting a little bit you know desperate um we actually had a plane um fly some supplies in so we had to get out on a big paddock of ours that was really flat and um slash all the grass down so the plane could land um yeah so many things that we experienced out there which sort of set me up i think for um, life and being able to i guess take on any challenge that came my way because once you go through those things everything else generally pales in comparison um so yeah really really enjoyed it Lindingham shares with us the differences between his time schooling when he was in new south wales compared to when he moved to the remote area in queensland when we're in new south wales just going to a normal day school and um that was awesome but then when we moved to central queensland we're obviously very isolated and the school um that was closest to us was three hours away so we we couldn't travel there and back in a day so all of the kids in that area did um school of the air so that's what what i did and essentially that was where the um the curriculum is given to you or given to us um and we engaged a teacher or we used to um i think that the term was a governess back then and that teacher would come and live with us on the property and Monday to Friday they would um, take us through the curriculum for the distance education school and for about one hour period each day we would um, dial in and chat with our teachers and fellow classmates but it was this is back when like there was no internet so it was um, via UHF radio so it was sort of the old you know, push to talk technology and only one person could talk at a time, otherwise you couldn't hear the other person. Um, so, yeah, we, we had um, some pretty interesting experiences with that and, you know, you could go sit down in your classroom and do um, four hours worth of work and then in your lunch break jump on your motorbike and go for a ride and then be back in the classroom. It was, it was awesome. How big was the class that he was in and did he have any siblings with him? At that time, I um, was just doing school with my brother. So we literally had sort of a, a separate, um, I guess you'd call it an outbuilding or a cottage that was our, our school classroom and me and my brother would be there and our um, teacher and we would, um, yeah, when we stepped inside that that building, that was class time and then when we stepped out, that was, um, you know, farm fun time. And the, the school that we um, were part of that was sort of based three hours away, that was a school that was about of 300 that made up of lots of, um, you know, kids from the local farming community where everyone was isolated in, in the same position. After going through the education system as a child, 
we find out whether he took on further studies or jumped straight into the workforce. We uh, moved back by by the end of the Central Queensland experience back into um, northern New South Wales and um, I finished my high schooling at a boarding school there. From that point, um, I have three brothers in my family and um, we we all made individual decisions but sort of the consensus among us was that we didn't really want to continue the farming lifestyle. Um, it's it's a pretty hard lifestyle and you've really got to have it in your blood to, to um, push through with it. So um, at that point, I um, wanted to continue my studies and I, I went um, to the University of New South Wales in Sydney and I studied, uh, studied um, construction management there and that um, basically set up the next phase of my life where I was, yeah, living and studying in Sydney, coming from, you know, the rural background, that was a massive change just being in the city and surrounded by so many people and um, working out how it all it all operated was definitely interesting. Um, from that point, yeah, studied, uh, got my Bachelor of Construction Management and then started off on a career with a commercial builder, a Tier 1 commercial builder. Before moving back up to Brisbane, Lettingham talks about the short period after moving back to New South Wales. I was there for about 10 years and I finished study that took about four years and then I started working for a commercial builder that was based in Sydney. Um, as I started working for them, they had a project that was based down in Jervis Bay um, and it was a project that um, needed people on site to be based on site, not in the office. So as sort of a, a young um, contracts administrator back then, I, I thought that was an awesome adventure to be part of. So I stuck my hand up and, and volunteered to go down, be based on site. And um, yeah, that was a fantastic experience. I, I essentially lived and worked down in Jervis Bay, which is about three hours south of Sydney. And my partner at the time was living in Sydney, so on the weekends I'd drive back um, and, and stay in Sydney or if the weather was, if it was summertime, we would spend it down in Jervis Bay because if, if anyone has been down there, it's like a lovely national park area with beaches that have got like super white um, sand and it's it's great in the summertime. So what, what year was that when you went down to Jervis Bay to work? That would have been um, about 2006, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, spent time down there uh, about three or four years. And then I decided to move um, to a different commercial builder just to get a bit of different experience. They had an opportunity up in Brisbane and it was just a three-month contract up in Brisbane and then the idea was to come back to Sydney and I went up to Brisbane, completed the project up, up here, fell in love with the city and, and the lifestyle and um, they had picked up more business so I decided to put my hand up and, and stay up here and then that's um, what led to, yeah, the next, you know, sort of uh, 10 years of my life I guess. Lettingham explains some of the work and the projects he was working on for the commercial builder. There's lots of different tiers of commercial builders, but I guess the easiest way to think of it is they they generally build commercial buildings. So um, it might be big distribution centres, it might be data centres, um, it might be um, restaurants, banks, gyms, um, or office space, and. The work I was doing was essentially um, project management towards the um, the middle and the back end of my career with the commercial builders. So the the work involved um, our estimating team winning a project, and I would get past essentially a set of um, construction plans, um, a budget that we had to build it for, and get introduced to the client. And then from that point on. Um, me and my team had to tender and procure the project, so engage all of the trades. We had to come up with a construction program that fit 
and met all of the clients' milestones. And then we had to physically coordinate and, and construct that project and all the way keeping the client up to date and, um, yeah, working with them. So there's, there's lots of things that, um, that I was able to have the, the pleasure to build in my time in the industry. Like I, I've built, um, data centers for, um, TV stations, gyms, banks, office spaces, um, medical centers. There's, there's so much, um, variety I found in that industry. It, it wasn't just sort of building the same product over and over. And that's what I found that my, personality really liked i liked um the physical sort of uh, the tangibility that came out at the end of it i could you know work on a project for x amount of months and at the end i could see and touch a, a product um so that really is satisfying to me he had essentially become a project manager and we find out how this position came about for him within the business it's a process and it's it's um, it's not necessarily quick but essentially the the common pathway is um, you you start generally in sort of a contracts administrator or um, contracts coordinator position some companies call it so you're essentially on the paperwork side there you're um, keeping track of budgets you're engaging contractors um, managing and while at that point you may not have the experience and the knowledge on how to physically construct things, you, you're learning the paperwork, the financial, um, and the administrative side. But I, the pathway I took was I wanted to get out on site and experience things physically, so I did a stint as a site manager. So in that essence, you're kind of dealing with trades face-to-face, you're working with them to solve problems or clashes that you come up with day-to-day, you're focused on safety at that point as well and controlling and managing safety on-site. And then from there, you can kind of switch back into a a more office-based role in um, that of like a project engineer or I went to a um, project manager and that's sort of where you... Essentially, you're right after, um, you know, after the client has um, engaged some of their consultants and, and given you the concept design, that's when you take over um, and bring it to fruition. So that's, I think that's why I have found it a pretty easy transition from commercial construction to um, development because all of the processes and the um, people that I speak to day to day in the construction world, it's the same. It's just a different subject matter in the development world. Now, you know, my chosen product is just land subdivision, but, you know, I'm still coordinating designs. I'm still managing trades. I'm still um, focused on providing the the end product in the best um, quality and also the quickest time frame. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it has been a relatively easy switch from that point of view, but then it's required a, a bit of a change in mindset, um, because there's definitely different, um, specialties that you need to be looking for in the two. We delve into the concept of joint ventures and what Lettingham is mainly looking for in a partner. The sort of quick um evolution of my development is that my first development was um my funds and uh, mates funds so we joint ventured together and um one one of us brought the cash that was my mate and um i brought the serviceability so i purchased the, the um shared our time to manage it from that point oh, at that point i was still working in my full-time job and that um, obviously I could only borrow so much from the bank um, and there was a ceiling on that. The next evolution was discovering sort of true joint venture, no money down projects. And that's where Matt Jones helped me out. Um, like he spoke about on, on a previous one of your 
episodes with his um, joint venture boot camp. So I attended one of those and really sort of it opened my eyes that I didn't have to basically buy one property or do one project that reached the limit of my serviceability. I could, if I found other profitable projects, I could approach other people, see if they wanted to joint venture with me and and use my experience to manage that. Um, and then it would benefit, you know, myself as well as the other joint venture partner. So that really took the, I guess, the cap or the ceiling off my mindset at that point. And from then, I've evolved into um, stopping my full-time work, developing full-time. And you're right, my, my approach at the moment is um, I essentially acquire sites, partner with investors or joint venture partners and turnkey um, develop, manage the whole process. His property investing journey has been a mix of developments and a buy and hold strategy. I have purchased properties to buy and hold and the, I guess the full backstory of my property journey is that that's how I started in property. I, I would probably say I'm a very late bloomer because you know I'm, I'm 37 now and I only bought my first property when I was 33. Um, before that point, I was aware of property but wasn't educated in it um, and I, I just didn't really have a drive to investigate it. But then I, I purchased um, a PPR that I lived in. Um, that was the first property. It was um, a purchase which I thought at the time was great. It was an uneducated purchase um, and the intent for that purchase was that I would live in it, renovate it and then um, essentially get it revalued and see if there was any uplift or um, maybe rent it out as an uh, investment property as a long-term hold. Um, that, because my, my research and education at that point was inadequate, I um, had a very tough conversation with my accountant at the time. I sort of explained to him my strategy that I um, saw for that property and he, he had done a lot of um, property development and investment and after I told him the nuts and bolts of it, he said, no, look, I don't think you've selected correctly. That property is not really going to do anything for you. You know, it may be neutrally geared but it's not really going to grow in value too much. The cash flow is not going to be great. It's essentially just going to be a, a limit or a handbrake on your portfolio and your serviceability. And for me, hearing that, you know, after I'd um, after I'd gone through the effort of purchasing it, and I did a renovation on the bathroom and the kitchen, and put sort of two weeks worth of um, blood, sweat, and tears into it, that was like a slap in the face. But I sort of I mulled over it for a couple of days what the accountant said, he was essentially saying just offload it, sell it and, and you know, select a, a better property next time. Um, so I swallowed my pride and, and did that um, and I'm grateful that I did sort of take his advice because um, I, I then started getting myself educated and it started initially as just getting educated in the buy and hold space and then partway through that education where I was going to seminars, listening to podcasts um, and getting some mentoring, I, I stumbled on the, the world of development and I thought this, this development stuff is pretty closely aligned to what I do in my day job in construction. I'm just managing people and processes. Um, and then sort of at that point, it was like a light bulb moment. I was like, this is... This is interesting to me. It's really exciting, but it also is me being able to leverage a skill that I have. And from that point on, it was just, yeah, focused on getting educated, tooled up and skilled up for um, development. So, yeah, it was kind of a two steps forward in property initially, one step back and then, yeah, onwards from there. 
We discuss his first property and the details of what happened to it since he purchased it. Sold that and it was the right call. I, um, to give context why it was the wrong purchase, it was um, a three bedroom unit in an old sort of six pack. So um, garage underneath and living area up top. And I picked an area, um, it was in Cooparoo in Brisbane. And at the time of purchase, there was a big development down at Cooparoo um, called Cooparoo Square that was in construction and about to come online. And right when I um, had finished my renovations and was going to either put my property back on the market or rent it out, um, I found out I was competing with some brand new finished apartments that were, you know, a much better location than mine. So that's that's the kind of research that I missed out on in that initial purchase and didn't sort of scope out, you know, how is my product going to compare against what else is coming online in the area. Would he consider that to be one of his worst property investing moments? I'd say that that's one of them. Um, the, the bitter pill to swallow in that one was... Um, twofold in the sense that, you know, I had got a decision that I thought was right, I, I had got that wrong, um, or it just didn't align with my strategy. And then the other point was in a monetary sense, like I, I spent two weeks of physical labor um, doing the renovation and then I also piled about 20 grand worth of materials and, and fixtures and fittings into it. and. Um, I, that was essentially for nothing. I I managed to get out of that property and sell it for essentially what I went into it with, but the um, additional um, labour and, and cost I put into it wasn't realised because it was competing with a brand new product down the road. So that was a, a really um, hard but a good lesson to learn that I essentially overcapitalized on a product that no one wanted or if they did want it, they would just go and buy it new. The global pandemic of COVID-19 had a massive impact on a lot of people and we find out about the effect it had on Lettingham. I had another one and that was a sort of a more recent one which I wouldn't say is, is my worst investing moment but it was definitely a stressful one and it, it occurred... Um, around the this pandemic um, that we're experiencing of COVID-19, I essentially um, had a project that I was going to settle on um, and it was leading up to settlement day. And at that point, I had gone unconditional on my finance um, because all of the, the signs with this lender were good. Um, I believe that, you know, it, it's a profitable project and there was no, um, there was no reason for them to um, not fund the deal. But as as news of the pandemic sort of spread and it gathered momentum and the the media um, sort of hysteria built, that lender uh, essentially pulled out of their finance offer. They said the the market for for them specifically is too uncertain, and we won't be able to fund your purchase. So. At that point, um, yeah, that was a real shock and um, I was in a position where the, the vendor for the property wasn't very willing to offer extensions. I got a small extension um, but essentially I had to um, settle on the property somehow. So it, it kicked me into another gear. I overcame that. Um, and was able to settle by sort of hustling um, and just working day and night with other lenders um, to get the situation sorted. But the, le the lesson learned was, you know, that um, in terms of the, the risks um, out of left field, you know, I guess everyone thought that a pandemic was maybe not even on anyone's radar at that point, but it, it was realised in my instance, it became an issue and I had to deal with it. So I think while it was super stressful at the time and um, 
it's something that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Like I, I, I will have lots of um, either protections in my contracts now to deal with um, pandemics where we can essentially um, activate those conditions and, and ask for longer extensions. Um, but, yeah, that was a real uh, lesson. We delve into how he was able to eventually settle the property and why it was done this way. To give a bit more explanation around that that um, project, I was in a position where the project I was buying it with the DA, and it I, I had been working on it for a couple of months, and I had put a significant amount of my own money into the the project. So, um, if I wasn't able to settle on that project, what happens um, with the DA? Um, it stays with the land. So essentially the owner of the land, um, if I didn't settle, would retain the benefit of the DA and my money um, that, you know, had assisted getting that DA would have benefited the owner. And so all of my work would have been for nothing. And in the REIQ um, purchase contracts, so the Queensland um, land purchase contracts, there's provisions for delay um, uh, or an acts of um, delay in the contract, but the, the remedy mechanism in there is for the contract to be terminated. And that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Like I, I needed an extension so I could source an alternative lender um, and everything in the contract um, was essentially saying, well, this has happened so you can terminate. And I, and I was at the point where I was like, no, I don't want to terminate. I, I, I must continue this contract but I need to extend it because of these um, acts of nature being the pandemic that have occurred. Um, so what I, what I um, was losing by that financier was pulling out, that was a financier that was um, going to lend 70%. So there was essentially, you know, a chunk of money. Um, I had a certain, uh, I had 30% equity um, and the 70% lender had pulled out. So I then had to scramble, find another lender. Um, and in that environment, um, it's still occurring now, I guess, um, the lenders are ratcheting back their LVRs. So you know, I, I found a lender, um, they were able to do 65% LVR. So I had to reach out to um, some of my investing partners and increase my equity position um, through assistance of my investors. The second issue I, I came up with once I had locked down the, um, the new lender that would come in and assist was that for this development, it's a nine lot subdivision, um, you need to get commercial valuations. Um, and I had one done with the previous lender, but that commercial valuation was only directed to the previous lender. And when I asked for the valuation to be assigned to this new incoming lender, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't assign it. Um, and that was essentially because of that valuer's uh, risk position. They, they saw... That, you know, they had valued it before the uh, pandemic started and they were being told by their their professional indemnity insurers don't assign any um, valuations or don't do any new development valuations. So then the search became, I, I'd found a lender, but they needed a commercial valuation and I had been granted an extension of two weeks. So I essentially needed to get a new commercial valuation done, returned, um, and then loan documents drafted and created, signed, all done in two weeks. So the challenge then became, okay, we've got the lender, now let's find a valuer that is comfortable to visit site do their due diligence, do their report and reissue it, you know, within a week so that I could leave the other week for the loan documentation to be drafted and, and issued and executed. Um, 
So it was literally, yeah, sort of a challenge a minute. But, um, you know, through the process of um, going into solicitors' offices on weekends, um, printing stuff, running to the bank, um, we, we got it done. And um, we, we managed to settle on the property. So now the, the project is secured, the DA is there, and it's, you know, it's an awesome project. Um, but, yeah, there was a big um, learning from what occurred with the pandemic, which I'll take for the rest of me, uh, for the rest of my um, development career, that's for sure. We dive into his subdivision and we discuss the changing market during this time and whether he can get a good return on investment. My general approach, um, if I'm looking at sites that are raw sites with no DA on them, and, and I will have to obtain the DA myself, I, I will only proceed on sites that have a 20% or plus um, profit margin. With the, this site, it already had a DA, so the, the planning risk element had been removed. It was already approved. We, could know, we knew there was nine lots, and we just had to basically deal with the construction cost risk and the, um, the sales risk. So um, that's a 15% profit project. And I think I wouldn't want to go lower than that if purchasing a site um, of that scale with a DA. Um, the um, time frame for the project, it's a 12-month project. And at the moment, it's just starting. So we foresee that there's there's definitely um, in the next couple of months there's going to be reduced um, consumer sentiment and anything that's going to be marketed in that period will have to be competitively marketed. But uh, I, I believe that, you know, in six to eight months things will be back to maybe not where they were before but people at least will... Um, know where they're sitting with their employment, they will know where their finances are heading and the routines, just the daily returns of what you can and can't do will be well defined. So I think it will smooth out and um, that's why I um, believed in that project. It wasn't a project that you know needed to be constructed and sold this month or next month. Like There was a long time frame until um, sales and settlements needed to be brought on the market. We've heard about one of his worst investing moments and now we find out the moment where everything changed for the better. I would say that would be it. It was more that my mindset up until about sort of four years ago was I, I was a PAYG employee. Like I'd, I'd always had a boss and I'd always worked for someone and um, I, I don't know why but I just hadn't ever considered that I could do something that was wholly and solely of my own creation and, um, you know, I could work for myself doing something that I loved. But as, you know, four years ago, as those sort of light bulbs started to switch on, um, I'd say that was my biggest light bulb moment or aha moment where it was like, okay, you've worked for other people and, and you know, been a company man up until this point, have a crack at something of your own um, because that way it can be wholly and solely yours. You know, your effort that you put in should correlate directly to the effort that comes out and, and you know, you can craft something that is um, to your standard and to your liking. So I'd say that was the biggest one followed closely by yeah, wow, this property development stuff is my path to going um, going out on my own and being my own boss. Lettingham explains his mindset when he was starting up his property development business and how he wanted to gradually phase into it. I kind of structured it um, to phase it in. So, I my first project I did, which was a six-lot subdivision, I was fully employed in a day job um, so I essentially ran that project um, in the evenings like when I when I get home after a day of work I'd have dinner and then sort of punch out you know two to four hours worth of work 
in the evenings and then on weekends as well. Um, as I got that one um, almost completed, then I bought a second six-lot subdivision online and I was still working full-time. But then I, I knew I needed to um, have some guidance and some assistance with making the transition. So I started looking around for mentors um, and essentially linked up with an awesome mentor who helped me um, craft my exit plan from full-time work into full-time development. And um, it, it occurred over the period of about a year, year and a half. Um, so it was, it was a planned process. With his experience in building the big commercial projects, Lenny Hammock shares why he decided to go down the route of subdivisions rather than many available options. I wanted to just start start simple and um, then build build from there. So for me, I believe that subdivisions are relatively low risk in the scheme of development because you're you're not. Um, putting a product, a built product on there that you're having to um, essentially guess what the market uh, wants to buy. Um, and I, I understand that you, there's a lot of research that goes into formulating the product that the market wants. But I, I, at the moment, just want to keep it simple. Start with land subdivision, build that process up till it's a solid, you know, process I can um, essentially fine-tune it and then once you know three four years down the track um, if I believe I'm at a stage where putting a built product on on the land is a benefit to me and my investors then I'll, I'll take that step but I just um, as part of some of my mentoring it was hammered into me just keep keep your focus narrow um, you know, don't look at all of the shiny options out there in terms of lots of fancy different development strategies. Just get focused, um, get really good at one strategy and then branch out once you've nailed that. So I also see subdivision as having the benefit of other exit strategies. So, you know, if, if the land product um, isn't generating the interest that um, you need in terms of sales, you can take the next step of um, adding a built product and that might be just a, a normal dwelling, it might be a dual occupancy dwelling in some councils, it might be a rooming accommodation dwelling. But um, I, I like the fact that I was keeping strategy simple and also my costs low. Like I obviously don't have to um, get financing and fund building let's say six houses before I can start to pay down that um, so that was that was the two driving things I guess simplicity and overall um, funding ease we learn more about the strategy behind his subdivisions and Lettingham explains how he's able to find the best deals for his subdivisions my strategy now like after I have educated myself and and sort of learnt from a lot of other way more knowledgeable people is that um, you need to understand the council area that you're working in and by understanding that you'll know the zoning of different land, you'll know the, the minimum and maximum requirements of lot, um, lot, you know, density and sizes you can put on land. So once you have that knowledge, you can assess different sites and you can get a um, an educated um, but not conclusive view of what you could do to a piece of land. And there's lots of different approaches, but sort of the, the one that I took on my first subdivision, it, to be specific about a project, is that um, that was a one-acre uh, property and the selling agent knew that it was capable of being subdivided but didn't know how many lots. Um, from my education at that point, I, I knew the same, knew it could be subdivided, didn't know how many lots. Um, I had some initial chats with um, some of my project team, the town planner, 
they guided me to say we we believe you can do four lots for sure. That's that's a given, given the council zoning and um, and requirements. And then so I on that basis I got the project under my control or the the property sorry under my control by putting a purchase contract onto it with a due diligence period, and then in the due diligence period that's essentially where you start getting really specific and speaking to council and finding out what they will um, generally approve in the case of the subject property. So that um, site was in Moreton Bay Regional Council in North Brisbane and they have an awesome facility where you can book and have a pre-lodgement meeting but you don't have to pay any money for it. They're free. So... All you have to do is book it in and wait about two weeks and then you can go into council, um, sit down with them and say, this is the property I have. Um, I would like to subdivide it. We're thinking this many lots. What are your thoughts? And they will they'll give you a planning and an engineering view of the development of that site and they'll give you some written notes to take away from it. And that was the process I, I did for that first subdivision where um, – I got the project, the site under my control. In the due diligence period, I met with council. Council guided me to say, um, you can subdivide this into six lots. However, you, if you do want to subdivide it into six lots, you must provide a um, new piece of council infrastructure in the form of a, a new road. So that was the point where the selling agent thought that the site could only um, have a yield of four lots, but then I discovered I could actually get a yield of six lots, um, so a, a greater um, profit, but then I had to factor out in how much it would cost me to build the road, and then that sort of process then takes off getting your engineering costings nutted out and, and um, worked out and then assessing before your due diligence period ends whether you're comfortable with the um, due diligence you've done and whether you're going to proceed with the purchase. There is nothing like having experience and he talks to us about how his previous life in commercial construction has helped him find deals and understand if they will be profitable. Depending on what council I'm working in, I I really um, insist on trying to get um, some consultation with council and getting their feedback um, and it, it, it's generally in the form of that pre-lodgement meeting so at least if you if you go to council with your intention um, they can either sort of say yes we will support that generally you they'll give you some feedback as well I say look we'd support that but you may have to add this element or you may have to compromise on that element um, or I've had this as well. I've taken sites to council and they've shot it down from the get-go and they've said, no, absolutely not. We're not doing that. And that's, you know, that's what you need to be aware of um, before you actually get in a position where you're um, unconditional on a, on a purchase of a property because you can end up, um, yeah, settling on a site that is not developable or, you know, instead of... Um, 10 lots, which you imagine you could get, you might only get five. Um, so, yeah, that is my sort of gold standard of due diligence, doing all of the, the costing um, and work with my project team, but then also getting council consultation on what they will and won't support because they're at the end of the day, they're the people that will be approving your um, uh, application for the development. We expect these successful property investors to have sophisticated ways of getting deals but sometimes the best deals are right there for everyone but you just need to know what to look for. All of my deals apart from one so far have just been out there on realestate.com so I, I, I sort of had um, a bit of a misconception when I started um, educating myself that, you know, I, I must get everything off market and I must, um, you know, I need to build up a big network 
of um, agents and, and deal finders to be able to get a profitable site. But um, I was pleasantly surprised by, you know, um, the sites that I've found so far. 75% of them have just been out there and they've either been sites where um, people haven't gone to that level of due diligence, like they haven't sat down with the council um, and, and said, can we do this? And they've missed an opportunity. Um, or maybe it's a site where there's some um, issues that engineering-wise someone hasn't been able to solve, whereas the, the engineering team that I've worked with have been able to solve it. I've only um, had one project so far where it's come to me uh, essentially off-market, but um, that is a part of my business where previously I haven't had um, the the time to be able to build up those um, those connections because I was working full time, but now um, I'm starting that process and sort of developing a, a regular um, network of agents that, um, yeah, hopefully can bring some of those opportunities my way. Part of that as well with with my chosen strategy. So my my focus is land subdivision, as I mentioned, but ideally I'm focusing on. Um, projects that are between five lots and 20 lots and I I purposely want to attack those projects because I, I believe that um, the competition for those kind of sites is a bit thinner generally you know staying away from the splitters and two and three lot subdivisions there seems to be a lot of competition because that's the I guess the entry level um, development site uh, and that you know people starting development generally um, start out on those so you know there's a big section of the um, I guess you'd call it beginner development market looking for those sites and then there's a lot of bigger developers way more experienced um, and knowledgeable than me that are attacking much bigger sites 50 100 lot sites but by me Focusing on you know just above the um, the beginner people and below the um, the big boys, I hopefully can get that competitive advantage on the sites that I I attack. Lettingham discusses his property portfolio, and we find out how many subdivisions he's completed over the past few years. My business has only started this year, so it's literally only, um, you know, we're in April now, four months old. Um, so I've completed um, four projects to date, and this um, next one, which is a nine lot subdivision, is sort of the next evolution, um, but that will be the first project with me working um, in the business full time. We delve into the motivating factor of the why behind choosing the path of property investing. I have a, um, a four-year plan and the sort of high-level view of that is is to um, help me get to a point with my personal wealth where I don't have to trade my time for money anymore and the, the um, intent of that is so that I can essentially help my friends and family around me um, get to the same level of wealth where, you know, if a pandemic hits, then there's no real stress. You, if you lose your job, then that's cool because you've got, a, you know, a portfolio or lots of money just as a nest egg in, in the bank. Um, and the overall intent is, you know, once once I can help myself, I help my friends and family. And then after that, sort of the, the world's my oyster. I can, you know, branch out into any, um, I guess, area that I, I choose. But... Um, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, – that's what I've realised over the past, I'd say, four to five years that I realised that I was trading my time for money and a lot of the time was spent working and I wasn't really having much time to enjoy life. Um, and that's that's the goal of it now, to be able to get to the point where I do still work because I, I love it but um, I can spend a greater amount of my time living and you know helping other people live and, and enjoy their lives as well. Lettingham shares with us some of the people that have had the biggest impact on his successful career. 
Matt Jones definitely helped um, me greatly with um, joint ventures and and sort of opening myself up to them. I um, yeah, I've sort of taken part in lots of his seminars and education. Um, someone else who was sort of my most recent mentor um, is Rob Flux. So he's based in Brisbane and um, he runs the Property Developer Network. So um, Rob has monthly meetups um, in Brisbane that I was attending um, and then I reached out to him at the beginning of um, 2019 when I when I knew I wanted to sort of leave full-time work and I asked him if he um, offered mentoring and he um, came back with a course that he, he has run very successfully and is running still now. It was called the Property Development Formula and essentially that course was like a 12-month course that paired mentoring on specific property development um, strategies and techniques and, and education but then it also paired another awesome um, element which I hadn't really thought of too much before and it was specifically on mindset so um, back then when I did it Rob was partnering with um, Tony Meredith a great life coach um, and that mentoring over 12 months was essentially lots of um, you know three or four times a month focusing on uh, a property-specific mentoring session and then a mindset session. And those two things um, sort of built my exit strategy. Um, and I, yeah, that is the real reason that I was able to um, leave my full-time job uh, when I did because w without that level of mentoring and that accountability, I believe I would have done it eventually, but I wouldn't have done it as soon as I, I have been able to. He provides some of his best book recommendations for us. I read a couple of years ago one called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Um, it's by T. Harv Ecker. And that was a really powerful book for me in just understanding um, wealth and how your money mindset or your money or your wealth sort of thermostat is created and, and set. Um, there was nothing really specific about property development in there, but that's a really awesome um, book just to get a high level understanding of how your mind works in relation to money and whether you've got a healthy or unhealthy relationship with it. Um, I read also... Um, a book by Steve McKnight, um, Zero to 130 Properties in Three and a Half Years. And although that, that book is sort of more buy and hold, investing focused, um, and it may be a little bit outdated, the the concepts and just the, the story in there that Steve went through um, and his success was really inspiring. Like I, I read that and went, wow, like, this guy has basically charged out and done this all on his own um, and has been able to make a great success of it. Um, so that was really inspiring. Um, and then one that I've just finished at the moment, which um, is a bit sort of more business-focused or marketing-focused, is called Sell Like Crazy by Sabri Subi. And that's... Um, sort of on um, marketing and digital branding um, and it's something that I had not a great deal of knowledge about before but it's sort of a one-stop um, one shop in terms of how to approach, you know, marketing and branding and bringing in customers to a new business. So that's, again, not property development focused but really good for anyone that has their own business. If he could say anything to his past self from 10 years ago, what would it be? I would just say open your eyes up to other possibilities um, other than being, you know, an employee. Like at that point 10 years ago, I hadn't even really thought about the concept of working for myself. Um, so I would just say 
start thinking about that because there's lots of other opportunities out there for you. Um, and in this day and age, it, it's getting easier and easier with the information out there for people to do their own thing. Um, I would also say start finding out about property because I I only really started researching and getting my head around property when I was about 34, 33. So, like, I would have loved to have gone back in time to the time I'm, you know, 18, my first job, and just say start, you know, start educating yourself back then because as everyone sort of knows, the, the time that you're in the market is a massive advantage, even if you don't have the means to be doing much in the market at that time. Just being in it helps a massive amount. So, um, yeah, I'd just say um, find out about property and um, think outside the box in terms of employment. You don't always have to work for someone else. How much of your success do you think is due to your skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? I think about 90% is skill, hard work and intelligence. There's always an element of luck um, and sometimes that's bad luck. Like I was thinking about it in the sense of, you know, the pandemic that we've recently experienced, you know, no one really could foresee that. Um, and in most cases, even though there's, you know, short-term challenges and hardship, it's only a small percentage and if you just keep keep cracking like that skill, hard work and educating yourself and, and getting sort of more intelligent about what you're doing, that will always overcome it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big believer that um, hard work and, and drive overcomes luck um, and chance any, any day of the week. Thank you to Henry Lettingham, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey, then visit our website at propertyinvestory.com.